0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Jerkson, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Morning, everyone. I'm gonna do uh, one more uh, Romans one before we take a break over for Christmas and then I'll come back to it. I have gotten the guys to dress up the Roman series in a Christmas sweater and uh, We've been taking big chunks of Romans, uh, whole chapters, half chapters at a time, except for last week and this week when we get to the actual solution to man's problems, to our problem. I wanted to slow it down for two weeks. Last week we spent the, the message speaking about justification, the fact that we are justified. And today, in the, later in that same sentence where Paul talks about justification, he talks about how we are justified and why we can be justified because the problem is, how can a good God just do that, right? How can a good God just acquit us of the charges against us? How can a good God uh, put us in right standing with Himself, even when we continue to mess up? I mean, it's not like we stop sinning after we become believers. We continue to struggle with weakness. We continue to sin. I sinned again this past week, just one time, but, but it was once. And, uh, but how, like, how can a holy God allow us to be in right standing with Him, to be close to Him, acquit us of the charges against us, and be intimate with us even though we continue to sin. And so last week we looked at the fact that He has done that, that's justification, but this week I want to look at the word propitiation, that's not a word most of you used this past week, Um, but I want to look at the word propitiation this week because it's the foundation as to why... God can justify us. And so I'm going to read five verses here again, and then we're going to, we're going to just park on that word propitiation. Um, but it says this in Romans 3, 21 to 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The, law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, that's awesome, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's pray and then we'll look at this thing of propitiation. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that all those of us here today who have given you our lives, we still wrestle with weakness, we still make mistakes we lash out in anger, we fall into lust, we still lie and cheat and steal at times, Jesus, and we we feel awful for those things. But yet we do them. And yet, Lord Jesus, because of what you did for us on the cross, we come before you again today and you accept us. And you don't turn us away, and you receive us again. You have justified us. You have put us in right standing with you. And I thank you for that tremendous gift. May it never get old for us. By the power of your spirit, I pray that those truths would become new again this morning as we look at this. In your name we pray. Amen. So how are we justified? Well, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. I'm going to get you, Ken, if you could just underline the propitiation one there. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now what does the word propitiation mean? I've got to look here because it's the Greek word again. I'll just give it to you. You don't have to remember it. But the Greek word that's translated there propitiation is the Greek word uh, helasterion. It means to placate or appease. Okay. Okay. So to placate is to placate someone's anger. If someone is extremely angry angry or wrathful and you placate their anger, you are appeasing it, okay? You are appeasing, you're absorbing, you're taking away anger. But the key thing is here that there is this idea of, of wrath or anger that is involved with our salvation. And sometimes when we talk about our salvation and Jesus dying for us, Uh, We talk about it in terms of Jesus paying our penalty for us. Absolutely, 100% true. Absolutely. But I want to just take it a little bit further. What the word propitiation tells us is this is more than just the paying of a debt, kind of a non-emotional event. This is more than when we got saved, when Jesus saved us or is saving us. It's more than just, you know, I owed a certain amount of money to the banker and now someone else with money came and paid off my debt and now it's paid off. I mean, there certainly is that aspect to what Jesus did for us at the cross, but it's a lot more than that because actually, I wasn't afraid the banker would come to my house and beat me up. Okay? When I have a debt to the bank, it's a debt I have to pay, but it's not a wrath thing. It's not an anger thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's a numbers thing. For the most part, it's not emotional. I mean, if I owe money to the wrong people, it might become an emotional thing. But what if I owe money to the bank? It usually stays pretty non-emotional. All right. But this word propitiation tells us that the, what happened at salvation was a lot more than just some neutral paying off of a debt. Here's God, he says, you owe me so and so amount of whatever and you can't pay it, so Jesus is going to pay it. There is that element, but it actually just goes far beyond that. Propitiation, it has to do with anger or wrath. Okay? So this is not just you owed God a bit and you couldn't pay it and Jesus paid it for you. Actually, God had wrath towards you. And more the way we need to think of it is, uh, you know, if you imagine having to appear before a king in olden days. Let's imagine you were the governor of a province in in a big empire and you need to appear before the king of this empire, and he is very wrathful towards you and suspicious of you because he feels like your province is not loyal to him, and maybe he had some tax money stolen or something, and now he's called you to appear before his throne, and when you're going to appear before him, he is already very wrathful. Now, that's a scary thing, especially if you're going you know, back to the days of empires and stuff when kings could do whatever they wanted. You, know, you don't want to appear before a king who's wrathful because is he just going to chop off your head? Is he even going to listen to you? If, to appear before a king that's wrathful, not a good idea. So as you go to, to, to meet this king, a good idea would be to send a gift a little bit ahead. You want to send a gift a little bit ahead, and you're going to scrounge up money, your own money, all the money of your relatives, all the money of your kids out of their piggy banks, the people who work for you in that province, you're going to scrounge it all up and you're going to make sure you cover whatever the king lost when that stuff got stolen because you want to appease him. You want to send a gift ahead that's going to appease his anger before you have to meet with him because you're afraid of meeting an all-powerful king if he's wrathful, wrathful with you. So you want to appease that anger. You want to show him that you're loyal to him, okay? And that gift that you give so you're trying to appease his anger, that gift of money or whatever, maybe you throw other stuff in there, uh, some good food or, or whatever it is this king likes, some fancy clothes, I don't know, but you just make a really good gift. That gift that you give to him, that you, you want that to get to him just before you get there, that gift is called a propitiation. Okay? It is a gift or a sacrifice that goes ahead and that appeases the king's wrath. It's not just that you owe him something. He's actually really, really mad at you. And he may have just cause for that. In God's case, he has just cause to be wrathful. But that gift that appeases his anger is called the propitiation. Now, when, it talks, when Paul talks about our salvation, he says that we have been justified. Now, how do we get justified? Because a holy God can't just acquit the charges against us. So how can he just acquit them? How can he welcome us into his presence even when I continue to mess up? How can he do that? Well, the reason is because he put forward Jesus as a propitiation. As the gift or the, or the sacrifice, in the case of Jesus' sacrifice and gift, that uh, appeases the king's anger. Okay? Now, that is really, really important. Now, I want to just take a little bit of a rabbit trail here because it's really important that we, that we understand this thing of God's wrath and salvation because... I feel like sometimes, us as Christians, we, have, we get a little bit sloppy when it comes to salvation. And I feel like sometimes people have this idea, like when Jesus saved us, he was saving us from the devil. Okay, now, absolutely, there is some, there, obviously there's some, there, there's, a little, there's a kernel of truth there when we accept Jesus, we do get protection from the devil, okay? We, we, we gain victory over the devil. He's, he is a scary being in his own right. I mean, he's a big bully, and when you, when you get the Holy Spirit in your heart, you, you are getting saved, and in a sense, you're getting protection from the devil. But here's the thing that we need to, to realize, because a lot of times, I feel like a lot of Christians in our society, they feel like Jesus died on the cross to save us from the devil, and the thing you have to understand is Jesus didn't die on the cross to save you from the devil, See, the devil is not the one that we were in trouble with, okay? The devil is a created being. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not everywhere. He has not existed for forever. He is a created being, okay? And so I feel like sometimes, us as Christians, we almost get this idea that there's these two kingdoms, and there are two kingdoms. The devil does have a kingdom, but we view this thing wrong. We view, here's the devil in hell, and here's God in heaven. It's kind of like these two forces, and maybe God's a bit stronger, Um, but here's the devil in hell, and hell is his kingdom, and anytime you see pictures of hell, you know, it's usually the devil's in charge, and 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 he's and you know people are going in and he's making he's torturing them and and he's doing stuff and we have this idea so hell is the devil's kingdom and there's the devil and he's in charge of all the bad stuff and here's God and here's heaven and the two kingdoms are clashing and it's it's kind of a fairly equal fight and so when Jesus died on the cross he was saving us from the devil but the thing you actually have to understand is when Jesus died on the cross he wasn't saving us from the devil see um, first of all hell isn't the devil's kingdom I mean if we can just rabbit trail there. Uh, for just a moment, hell isn't a kingdom, it's a prison, nobody gets to be king there, okay? Satan didn't build, build hell, God did. If we look at Matthew 25, you just have to, you have to see what's going on here. And again, there is a sense in which getting saved, we get protection from the devil, but that's not why Jesus had to die. If Jesus wanted to just save us from the devil, he didn't need to die to do that, he could have just punched the devil in the face and sent him to hell, okay? Matthew 25, verse 41, this is what Jesus is going to say to people at the end of days, Uh, who have not accepted him. A sobering passage, he says to them, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus actually built hell, okay? The devil didn't build it, it's not his kingdom. The devil doesn't want to go to hell, he's afraid of going to hell, it's his jail cell. It's his dungeon, okay? Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil, this is what's gonna happen after Jesus comes back, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I could have gone on a longer rabbit trail. I don't have time here today. Sometimes it's just good to get proper perspective. But I actually believe that the scripture teaches that the devil is not in charge in hell. I believe that there's a number of prophecies in scripture. I believe that the devil will be made the lowest of the low creatures in hell. Because God always humbles the proud. He always brings the first will be last and the last will be first. The devil was at the top. The devil was the most proud. I really believe in Genesis 3.15 when he talks about the serpent crawling on his belly. I believe that the devil will be the lowest of the low creatures in hell. That he will be at the bottom. And that will be the ultimate humbling. Okay? So, but anyway, the point is that we, we are not supposed to fear the devil. Yeah, he's a scary being right now. But he is... In big trouble coming up, he's a created being, and the scriptures clearly teach us that we're not to fear Satan or anyone else, but to fear only God. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear, fear him, that's God, not the devil, fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell, yes, I tell you, fear him. The devil's not the one that has the authority to cast us into hell. He might be, have the power to bully us, torment you, you know, temporarily for a little bit here on earth, but he does not have the authority or the power or the ability to cast people into hell and to torment them forever. So when Jesus died on the cross for us, he didn't die to save us from Satan, even though some protection from Satan is certainly something we get. Here's a statement that might be shocking to some, but it's true. It is far worse for a sinner to fall into the hands of an angry, holy, almighty God than it is to fall into the hands of Satan. See, a lot of people have this idea, I'd rather fall into the hands of God than into the hands of Satan. It depends how you mean fall into the hands of God. If you want to fall into the hands of God as someone who trusts him and loves him, absolutely it's great to fall into his hands. But to fall into God's hands as an unforgiven sinner, far worse to fall into a holy God's hands as an unrepentant sinner, than to fall into the hands of Satan. That's what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 10 26 to 31 says this: For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful Expectation of judgment. The Greek word there translated fearful is the Greek word phobaris, where we get the, the word phobia from. It means to be terrified, it means to be terrified. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So to live unrepentantly in sin is to actually set you up for the most terrifying thing. It's far beyond what we could ever imagine, and that is to have to appear before God and to fall into his hands as an unrepentant sinner. Anyone, it continues on, who has cast aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful, and there's that word forbearance again, it's actually terrifying. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we see a side of God's nature here that is not popular to talk about when we talk about God. And absolutely, we're going to get in this message yet too. I mean, we have to talk about the love of God. I love the love of God. That, I mean, I, amen. Who doesn't love the love of God? Awesome. And we need to understand it more. We need to receive it more. And we will talk about that yet in this message. However, it's become very popular in our culture, especially in our Christian culture to talk only about the love of God. And there are so many authors and teachers out there right now and people who just say, if we just knew more about the love of God, if we just knew more about the love of God, if we just knew the love of God, that's all we need. If we just knew the love of God, everything would be okay. And the fact of the matter is, that is actually a false statement. If all we needed to know about was the love of God, then the Bible wouldn't need to talk about God's wrath. It would just talk about His love. But did you know that there are several hundred times in here when it talks about God's wrath and His fury, over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New. See, God's wrath is just as real as His love, okay? Revelation 14. God's wrath is just as real as His love. This is what God, the God we serve, who is most certainly a loving God, this is what He's going to do to people at the end of this age. uh, Revelation 14, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, okay? And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. This is anyone who rejects Jesus. Anyone who thinks, you know what, I'm just going to live for myself. In this case, specifically, it's people who take the mark of the beast in the end, but this is the fate of all those who think, I would rather just live for myself, than to give my life to Jesus and to trust him. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Jesus. So you can't even play good cop, bad cop with God here. You can't say, well, God the Father is the wrathful one and Jesus is the one. He kind of looks away. He's kind of embarrassed about hell. No, Jesus is fully on board with this, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, those are some verses right there that a lot of Christians are embarrassed about, frankly. In fact, I was looking through the wrath verses, New Testament and Old Testament this past week, and I realized there's a whole several hundred passages in here for sure that a lot of Christians are just plain embarrassed about today because they think that makes God a bad God. Ephesians 5 verse 6, which is why so many are teaching against this, and Paul warns, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. He's not talking about non-Christians here, he's talking about Christians. Non-Christians don't talk about God. He's talking about teachers that come as believers, and he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It might sound good, it might come in a nice package on a book and in the online message. But he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So we as Christians today, many of us, are embarrassed of the wrath of God. But Jesus and God the Father are not embarrassed about God's wrath. And the reason that God is not embarrassed about his wrath is it's a part of his holy nature. A holy God who loves passionately must have wrath against sin. I mean, imagine a husband comes home. He finds his wife with another man. He's going to feel angry. He's going to feel angry. In fact, if he doesn't feel anger, that means there's something not healthy there. It means his love for his wife left a long time ago. But if there's passionate love for someone, the flip side of passionate love is this potential for anger, this potential for anger, okay? And now, and think about God. He didn't have to create the universe. He didn't have to. He didn't need to make us. But out of his holiness, his goodness, his creativity, he creates this universe and he creates human beings out of nothing. Amazing. It's just, it's astonishing that he would even do it. But he creates the universe out of nothing. He creates human beings. And the reason he creates us is because he wants to love us passionately. He wants to shower. He's so full of love, he wants to make creatures to shower his love on and have them love him back. He doesn't need to do this. He doesn't do it because he's depressed. He does it because he wants to. But now he makes these creatures. And remember, the most passionate love you could feel here on earth. A parent for their child, a a wife for her husband, a husband for the wife. The most passionate love we could ever feel for anyone here on earth is just a taste of a love that originated with God. He invented love. It's something that happens inside of him. So he makes the universe and he makes people for the purpose of loving them and then people utterly reject him. What emotion is a righteous God supposed to feel? If there's no wrath, it means there's not passionate love there. And so a holy God must feel wrathful against the rebellion and indifference and apathy and disobedience of of a people he has created to be loved for that purpose, who then turn around and reject him. I mean, again, I think if you want to just touch in on what this emotion might feel like, just scratch the surface. Obviously, these are... These are incomplete. Analogies never fully capture what's going on, but I don't know if any of you has ever been around a family where the kids are out of control, okay? It happens fairly common in, commonly in our culture today. How do you feel when you're around a family where the kids are out of control? Where the kids are running amok, they're everywhere, they're completely disrespectful, they're not grateful, mom and dad bend over backwards to buy them whatever they want, and and give them good things and the kids don't notice at all but they yell and they scream and they hit their parents and they don't listen and they're disobedient and they're rebellious and they're disrespectful of all the other people around them when if you've ever been in a situation like that and I'm betting most of you have in our culture today that's not that uncommon if you've ever been in a situation like that around kids who are out of control how does that make you feel does it make you feel, oh, I just feel so grateful right now. I'm just enjoying this. How about if the kids, those kids are at your house? You feel anger. You feel like, oh, I want to go old school here. <laughs> right? I, this makes me mad. It just, it's just wrong. It sets my teeth off. It's bitter. It's a gross feeling now. Imagine an all holy God. I mean, that's just scratching the surface, an incomplete analogy, a picture. Imagine a holy God who has made this wonderful universe and he's got all these kids, but they are absolutely running amok, intentionally breaking his commands, disrespecting him, not loving him, not grateful at all for his many blessings, which he pours onto both the righteous and the evil completely disregarding his many blessings, not grateful, not trusting, not loving, what is a holy God supposed to feel against kids like that? If you and me can feel just a little touch of anger when we ourselves are sin-stained, how much more must a holy God feel wrath from heaven when this is the situation he looks down on? The problem is not with God's anger. The problem is with us, but then that creates a problem for us because the fact of the matter is, it's not just that we owe him some kind of debt as if he's a banker. Our problem now is because of our sins, which we don't feel nearly bad enough about because we're not holy and our whole perspective of things is twisted by sin itself, so we really don't view our sins very badly, but our problem now is, is that because of our sinful nature, We don't just owe God something we can't pay back. We owe a wrathful and angry God a penalty we can't pay back. He's not just a dispassionate banker, He is a wrathful, holy God who will utterly and eternally torment, burn, and punish all that is sinful and wicked. And evil. So the question then is, how can a God like that justify us? How can a holy God, and again, some of you sitting here today, I hope, we're good, I'm getting to the grace part right away, but I just feel like we just need to have a, we just need to have a warning because there are people even here today, there are people here today who have never, you've never given your life to Christ, There's people here today who you've kind of pretended and played the Christian game for many years, but you've actually never really given your life to Christ either. You've gone to church. You've, you've, in your mind, you've said you believed in Jesus, but you've never given him your life. You've lived your whole life for yourself. To live like that without Jesus means that you are walking on very, you are walking on thin ice. You're walking on the thinnest of ice you're walking on a wet newspaper and beneath it is a vague volcano of holy wrath that burns forever. And you don't even know how long you have. You think, I'll just, I'll get my act together later after I buy that bigger house, after I retire, after I get some of those nicer things. I'll, I'll get my act together later in my life when my health starts to decline, but for right now, I just want to live for me. You don't even know how long you have. I can't tell you how many people I know in this church over the years who thought they were perfectly healthy they go into the doctor, and I, I, there's more. It's happened again just recently, again. They go into the doctor, and they find they have serious cancer. You don't know how long you have. And they, up to that moment when they went to the doctors, they thought, nothing wrong with me. You know how many people I've known in this church that they, everything was perfectly fine. They get in a car. They go out. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how close you are. You don't know how, how long you have. and what you do, And what you think is, I have all the time in the world because... God is like this Santa Claus up in heaven and I owe him a little bit and I'll get my act together and I'll pay him off. No, no, he's a wrathful, holy God. He's far more terrifying than Satan to those who have not been justified. And you walk on this thin film, this thin ice, thinking that everything is okay. But the, only, the reason you think everything is okay is not because everything actually is okay. It's because your perception is completely blinded. And you walk above, suspended, just barely hanging on above this eternal pit of damnation and wrath. Jesus is not embarrassed about it. God is not embarrassed about it. He utterly hates sin and his wrath, his holy wrath burns against it and the most terrifying thing that we can even imagine, it even goes beyond what we can imagine, would be to appear before him in our sins and not to be justified. But how then can a God like this justify us? And the answer lies in this word propitiation. I love how God were the problem but God had to come up with a solution. We had no way of appeasing that kind of wrath. We had no way of appeasing it we had no way of paying for it. And so God had to come up with a solution. He's like, I, my anger burns against this sin, but I also love people, and I have to give them an opportunity. But how does this wrath get satisfied? He puts forth himself. He puts forth his son Jesus' as a propitiation, which is not just the payment of some debt at a bank. It's the appeasement of awful, holy wrath. And so he puts forward Jesus as the propitiation because how do you appease? I mean, again, think of it in terms of how, do you, how would you appease the wrath of a parent where you've hurt their child intentionally, now they're mad. No amount of money is going to appease that kind of wrath. How do you appease the wrath of a spouse who's been cheated on? I mean, there's no amount of money that's going to do that. How do you appease the wrath of a God who you have rebelled against? There's no way to do it. So God had to do it himself. And so he put forth his own son, Jesus, as the gift that appeases wrath, the sacrifice that appeases wrath, the propitiation for my sins, which is why I believe Jesus' death had to be so gruesome. Amen. I mean, have you ever thought, why did Jesus have to die that way? I mean, why couldn't he have just died in his sleep? It's still a death. Why couldn't Jesus have just died in his sleep for my sins, right? I mean, he's the, all, he's the sovereign God of the universe. He could have picked I mean, as long as he didn't want to be killed, they couldn't kill him. Remember, they tried to stone him and he just walked right in between them and they all kind of just froze and he just walked down the hill and then they all said, why didn't we just stone him? I, I, I don't know. He's the powerful God of the universe. That's why. He dies when he wants, how he wants. So he died by crucifixion. He could have died in his sleep. He could have had the Romans just slit his throat or behead him. I mean, I wouldn't want to go those ways, but it's a lot better than how he went, which is crucifixion is one of the worst ways invented by humankind to kill people. It lasts hours and hours and hours, sometimes days. It is horrifically torturous. It is preceded by a horrific whipping and, and, and unimaginable tortures. Why would he die that way when he could have picked all kinds of other ways to die, much quicker, much neater, much less painful? Why did Jesus have to die so gruesomely? And I believe the reason is because, again, he was not just paying a debt to a banker. He had to absorb the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. And if you want to see how much God hates sin, he is not Santa Claus. Santa Claus does not put people on a cross. If you want to see how much a holy God really hates your sin and my sin, you look at the cross. And you see what Jesus went through. He was even forsaken by his father while he was on there. He said, Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet in the Bible it promises for those of us who receive Christ, he will never forsake us. But when he went to death, he went alone. He had to go alone. He had to go alone. He couldn't have help. He had to have God turn his face away because God had to, in Jesus, pour out all the wrath fully that was due us for our sins. And so Jesus becomes the propitiation, not just a bank payment, not just a payment of debt. He becomes the one who absorbs God's holy wrath instead of us if we will receive him. That way, when God justifies us now, it is not that He's going easy on us or overlooking our sins. A holy, righteous God can never do that. What is really happening is that God has poured out the wrath for those sins on Jesus. It's not that God has gone easy on our sins, it's not that God has gone lenient on our sins. It's that if you receive, if, that's a big if, but if you receive Christ, not just believe in him in your mind, but if you give him your life, He actually, you actually step behind him and all the wrath that was due him hits him. God is not lenient on our sin. He punished it in Jesus if you will receive him. And because he wasn't going on easy on sin, he was appropriately punishing it in Jesus, which is why Paul says in the very next sentences in Romans chapter 3 there, he says this was to show God's righteousness. This was to show God's righteousness. So you see here that God is having to defend his righteousness. Now, defend who does God have to defend his righteousness from? In our culture, we don't really care about righteousness. We would be totally okay with it if God had just forgiven our sins. That is sweet. What a forgiving God. We're okay with him not being holy. We're okay with him not being righteous. The truth of the matter is, God's righteousness and his holiness matter very much to him. They are an essential part of who he is. And someday when we see more clearly, we will see too that they are an essential part of who he is. And we will will love his holiness and his righteousness just as much as we love his love. But for now, our eyes are a little warped. We don't care that God needed to show himself righteous. But to God, it's very important that he defends his righteousness. He says, so this was to show God's righteousness. Jesus had to go through the full horrors of God's wrath. And this was to show God's righteousness. God was defending his righteousness while Jesus suffered on the cross. Because in his, and there's two reasons why. I'm going to look at two reasons here. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In his divine forbearance, God had been passing over former sins. What's he talking about here? He's talking about all the people of God, the saints, who had lived in the thousands of years before Jesus died. So how come, I mean, and, and think of, like, they're, they're quite a motley crew, okay? King David is going to be in heaven with us someday. Amazing. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and murdered her husband. How on earth can a holy God let a guy like that go to heaven? How can a holy God let King David live out his life, die in peace, and then then go to heaven? It makes no sense. And we can look at Abraham and Noah and Lot and a whole bunch of others who lived before Jesus died on the cross And the accusation that was against God for thousands of years until Jesus was, how can you pass over these people's sins? And what Paul is saying here is that God was only temporarily passing over their sins because he was looking ahead to Jesus. And he said, I am going to take out my wrath for their sins on Jesus. That's how he could forgive a David. That's how he could forgive an Abraham. That's how he could forgive a lot. Not because he was forgetting about their sins, but because he was just temporarily waiting until he could take out his wrath for those sins on Jesus. So, when Jesus died on the cross, the effects of that went both forwards and backwards in time. And so, the people who were saved in the Old Testament, even though they didn't know the name of Jesus, but they were saved because they loved God and they followed him as best they knew, were still saved by Jesus being the propitiation for their sins. God was just waiting to do that. But, secondly, there, it says that God, it says the second time that God had to show his righteousness. If we go to the next one there. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness also at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he might be just and the justifier of us now in the present time. And the accusation here, in the old times, the accusation was, how can God be just when he forgives a David? In the present times, It's a little different because Jesus has already sinned, but the question is now, how can I be in right standing when I continue to sin, which is what I brought up at the beginning of this message, right? How can me and you, how, I mean, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us lost our tempers this week and said things we wish we hadn't said? How many here struggled with lust this week? How many here, you know, and on and on. We could just name things, lied or exaggerated, all kinds of things, sometimes even things we can't even remember, and the people of the world can look at the church, and they often do, and hypocrisy sometimes is, is awful. Holiness really does matter. But the fact of the matter is, we're weak and we're broken. We are still weak and broken. And so the accusation comes how can God, I look at some of these Christians, and they struggle too. How can this person out here who hasn't received Jesus but lives a pretty decent life, how can you say that person is on their way to hell and this person isn't? How is that just? How on earth can that be just? How on earth is it that I can struggle with a sin for the thousandth time in my life and go back to Jesus and have him say, I love you, let's keep going? How is that just? It sure doesn't seem just. And Paul says we point back to the cross. We point back to the cross. The only reason it's just is not because God is going easy on those sins even now. It's because if I give my life to Christ, I step behind him and all the wrath for those sins goes on to Jesus instead of me. And the problem with these people out here is not that God isn't just, that they're still under wrath. It's that they haven't chosen to get behind the propitiation who absorbs the wrath on their behalf. And so it's not based on what we've done, but it's based on what Jesus did for us. And the thing that's so amazing about this is because justification is built, you want to go to the next one there, Ken? I think I have a So our justification isn't just a thing God did because of his feelings, because he had a generous day, because he had a particularly kind day. Our justification is fully based on this massive foundation of Jesus' propitiation, that he actually took God's wrath. So it's actually, it's a solid thing. God didn't just justify me once, but if I sin the same sin a hundred more times, he's going to get fed up and that's done. See, the thing is, it doesn't have to do with me. I couldn't pay, I couldn't appease the wrath. It's so much more solid than that. Our justification is solid because it's built on Jesus' propitiation. He took all the wrath that could be taken. And so many of us live under this lifelong, low-grade, persistent condemnation. It just hangs over so many Christians like a cloud. This constant sense like God is mad at me. Like I'm not spiritual enough. Like, he can't be pleased with me. And it's because we continue to struggle with weakness. So how could God be? But the thing is, it's not based on that. Your justification isn't based on how amazing your self-discipline is. It's based on only one thing. Did you give your life to Christ? Because if you did, he took all the wrath. As only he could do. Which is why Paul says next in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul says our boasting is excluded. You could, you could never appease God's wrath by being super self-disciplined and just being a super good guy or super good girl. So there's no boasting. But you know what the flip side of no boasting is? There's no pressure. There's no boasting. You can't say, I'm just a pretty good guy. I got a personal ministry a few times. I got it all together. I've got pretty good self-control. I've got locks on my computer so I don't look at bad things. And I'm just a pretty good guy. And God says, that could never have appeased my anger. So there's no boasting. But the flip side of no boasting is this. There's no pressure. If there's no boasting... That it's not me getting myself together that makes God accept me. It's actually based on what Jesus absorbed for me as a gift, as the sacrifice, the propitiation for God's wrath. And there's also no pressure. And I'm actually set free to live and even in my weakness to continue to go back to God and just bring it to him. Thank you that you paid for this. Thank you that you took the wrath for this and he receives me again. I'm actually free to live. It's kind of like this, and I want to use again a very... All analogies are ultimately very inadequate, but I want to use an analogy. I don't know why I'm using basketball. Basketball's not that popular here, and I don't even really like it, but I'm going to use basketball anyway. <laughs> Too late now to change it. Imagine you're on a basketball team, okay, and the coach is just all over you. He's yelling in your face. You got to make these shots. You, you cannot make a mistake. I mean, we just... This is such a close game, we're gonna, you're going to just barely make it. If you're going to make it, if we're going to win this game, if you're going to get through this game, you've got to make absolutely every shot. You've got to play defense perfectly. You've got to be in perfect position. And if we lose this game or if you miss a shot, you know what, I just don't like you. Your family's not going to like you. Nobody on this team is going to like you. You've got to make the shots. Now, what kind of basketball are you going to play after that? I don't know about you. I'm not that good under pressure. I mean, I'm going to have an anxiety attack probably right there. Just <laughs> have a hard time breathing. <laughs> Please help me. Medication. You're going to be all tight. I mean, you're just going to be tight, like, and you're going to miss everything. you just, how do you even function under that kind of pressure? Don't make a mistake. Every mistake you make, he's glaring at you. He's yelling at you. Your teammates are yelling at you. That is a horrible way to play the game of basketball. Not that I even play the game of basketball, but I'm pretty sure it would be horrible. Imagine a totally different scenario, though. Okay, imagine a totally different scenario. Imagine coach waves you over and he winks at you. There's a glint in his eyes. Come on, come on. And he says, uh, I won't put you in the game. He says, here's the thing, you don't got to worry about it. My son scored a million points in the first half. And he looks down the bench and there's Jesus. And he gives you a little grin and a wave. <laughs> It's like, yeah. There's no way the other team can come back. I mean, we're ahead. They could score 100 points, but he scored a million in the first half. So the game's already done. It's it's fine. But I want you to go out there. We're not going to fold the game up because actually, I just... The joy of coaching you and helping you become a better basketball player and the joy... Jesus just wants to play with you. So the game is already in hand. He's already done the whole thing. It's unbelievable. But I just... We just want to have a joy of playing with you and coaching you. So get out there, and I want you just to go for it. And you're like, oh, okay. And you run out there, and you start taking shots. And you're clanking them. You have no idea what you're doing. You're wrong positioning on defense. You're all over the map. But every time you miss, you feel like, oh, shoot, shoot. And you look over, and the coach is going. (laughs) And you fall down, and you're out of position. And Jesus is always right there, and he just, with a spring in his step, he just pulls you up. Keep going. I love playing with you. And you, after a little while, you actually start to believe it. They like playing with me. And you keep shooting, and you're missing, and you're all over the map, but he just keeps pulling you up and cheering you on. And then finally, you actually make a shot. You actually make a shot. And I mean, you would have thought that you just Won the game. I mean, Jesus scored a million points already, but it's as if you actually won the game. Jesus picks you up, and the coach is cheering, and everybody's cheering you on. And the coach looks after you and he says, There, I have so much reward stored up for you after the game for making that shot. Like, you wouldn't even believe it. I'm just, Wow, awesome. And you're like, Who are these people? <laughs> this is not, this is unbelievable. And that love begins to just absolutely wash over your heart and suddenly you realize to yourself, I would do anything for this coach and this Jesus. Anything. I don't care what position they ask me to play. I don't care if they want me to be a ball boy, if they want me to mop floors, if they want me to scrub toilets. I want to be on this team. I would do anything for this coach and this Jesus. That is just a tiny picture of what would happen in our hearts if you ever really grabbed on to this thing that Jesus took the wrath for you. And now you are set free to live. You are set free in your weakness to pursue him, to keep getting back up. You know, when that revelation of God's grace on you really sinks in, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start bouncing back quicker and quicker and quicker. You fall on the floor, and instead of spending a month going, oh, I'm so bad, I'm such a horrible person, I'm so useless, God can never use me, blah, 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 I'm never changing, blah, blah. You would bounce up, and, and he would give you a thumbs up and say, let's keep going, you would say, sorry, absolutely. He would pick you up, and you would just bounce back, and you'd get back in the game. And you know what, eventually, as this revelation of God's grace catches in your heart, you'll get so good at bouncing back that eventually you won't have much to bounce back from. That's God's grace because of propitiation. Now, here's the thing. It's one thing to know this theology in your head. But you know what the sad thing is? Most Christians today are too lazy to get this from here to here. This will not change your life here. Knowing this, just hearing this message from you won't change your life. You just have it here. Oh, Jesus, my propitiation, I'm justified. Sweet. But you go out and you'll live under this low-grade condemnation. You'll go out and you'll live not pushing into Jesus. Not running after him and being willing to do whatever he absolutely wants you to do because you're so amazed at who he is. Until you get it from here to here. Jesus has actually made some of these truths so that we have to press into him. He wants to see how badly we really want them. He will give you this truth, I promise you, in your heart if you really want it. But you're going to have to do some hard work. You're going to have to spend some time meditating and praying to him and listening to him and having a relationship with him. But if you do that, his Holy Spirit promises to take that from here and to put it into here. And once it starts getting into here, just like that basketball player, it will radically change the way you live your life. So here's my challenge to you for this week. But we do the hard work. I'll give you a little bit of homework for this week. For those of you who really want to push in and pursue this, I would challenge you this week to read Romans 3, 21-31 and Romans chapter 8 every day this week. And just meditate on the words. Just meditate. Prayerfully meditate. And in your journal, have conversations with the Lord about these truths. Just have conversations with Him about it. Talk to Him about it. I don't feel this in this area of my life. I don't. Why? this. Can I help me get this? Have a conversation with him in your journal every day about these things. Ask him questions. Listen for his responses. And then every day I would just ask, just pray. This is something I've been praying now for, I think it's about a year now. I've been praying on and off and fairly regularly I've been praying, God, give me a revelation of your grace. Not just here. Give me a revelation of your grace here. I can understand it and know it. And remembering that this grace only applies to those of us who have actually given our lives to him. If you're here today and you haven't, I'm going to give you an opportunity right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask everyone to, to pray with me so no one feels left out. But you never know when there's a Gwen out there that just needs to pray it. Needs to take a step to Jesus. But if you haven't given your life to Jesus, you're still under wrath. You're not the basketball player on the good team. You are still under a holy God's awful wrath. And to play with that is a scary thing. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you guys just to pray after me, and we're going to give people who an opportunity to respond who have not yet done that in their lives. Dear Jesus, I want to be on your team. I give you my life. I ask you to forgive my sins. In your name I pray. Amen. For the rest of us, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, those of us who will push in for this this week. Would you give us an upgrade in our revelation of your grace and love for us, of propitiation and justification. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Selfland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.